0: If you recall, uh, John writes this letter so that his readers may know and enjoy fellowship with God. John writes this letter so that we can know God and share intimate fellowship with Him. Now, sometimes John does this in the form of assurance. For instance, he writes this I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. And so, we can see here John, he's breathing assurance into his readers. Sometimes John, he does this in the form of warning. If we look in 1 John 2, 4, this is what he says, whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, John, he wants us to know that we have fellowship with God, and he vacillates between these two tones. He gives us assurance at one point. He gives us comfort at one point, And then he gives us warning. He says, if you say you know him but you don't, you're a liar. He goes back and forth between these two tones, but simply he just wants us to know and enjoy fellowship with God. Now, today, what we'll do is we'll look at another theme through which John presents fellowship with God, and that is through relationships, namely in loving one another. Now, today, uh, for this brief time, I want to unpack what John says about loving one another, and I'll do that by asking three questions. Simple questions. Number one, why do we love? Number two, whom should we love? And number three, how should we love? So first, why do we love? If you follow this letter, John, never does he ground the command to love upon us. In other words, John never says love to the point that you are able to love. He never says love those whom you deem lovable. He never grounds Love upon us, the giver, or the recipient. Instead, this is what John says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Why do we love? Or maybe the real question we should ask is, why should Christians love? Well, it's not because we have the capacity to love, and it's not because the recipient is deserving of our love. But the command to love is given because God is love, and we have been loved by Him. You know, studies show that well over 50% of social workers, counselors, therapists, and any workers who are associated or working with addicts were once addicts themselves. If you ever go to an AA meeting, most likely the counselor there or the therapist there or someone helping there was once a former addict. There have been a number of studies done on this, asking the question, why is it that recovering addicts go back to help other addicts? And the answer is because recovering addicts, they identify with their profession and the people whom they help. Addiction counselors are incredibly compassionate. They are incredibly dedicated. Why? Because they know what it's like to be in hiding. They know what it's like to have family and friends all turn away from you and lose hope. They know what it's like they've experienced losing their jobs, their marriage, and their kids. They've experienced what it was like being a slave to substance. They know what it's like to hit rock bottom, and they know what it's like to try to get up, but once again relapse and face disappointment. They know what it's like to be powerless and hopeless. You know, despite the human resource management challenges that they face, counselors, they they have high caseloads, very low pay, and they're constantly facing from their clients resistance to treatment and disappointment through relapse. Despite all of that, addiction counselors, they return to help because someone first Helped them. See, the reason why we ought to love one another is because we were first loved by God. You know, 1 John 4, 7, um, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You know, even in this command to love, notice the expression of love what does he call them? He calls them beloved. Even in this command to love, he gives an expression of love. You are beloved. He reminds them who they are. You know, quite often when we hear this command to love one another, we have a knee-jerk reaction. And I think our first tendency is towards self-preservation. I don't know about you, but whenever you know, I read in scriptures, love one another, the first thing I think about is, well, what if I get hurt? What if I open myself up to love someone, and what if I get hurt? Yeah, I, I think our initial response is always self-preservation. What about me? Scripture constantly says, love one another, love one another. It never says, love yourself. What about me? And that's why here, John, he writes, Beloved, you are beloved. You are not rejected. You are not forgotten. You are not abandoned. You are not misunderstood. But you are beloved. You are loved by God. So love one another. Or chapter 419 simply says this, We love because he first loved you know, Christians, we have um, spiritual amnesia. So often we forget how unlovable we actually are. We forget how God loved us first, how unlovable we were and we are, that He loves us despite who we are, and He loves us with an enduring and powerful We love because He first loved us. So that's why. Why do we love? Because He loved us first. Second question to ask is, whom should we love? Who do we love? Interestingly, John here, he doesn't say in his letter, love the world. He doesn't say love everyone. But he writes, love one another. In other words, love those who are in Christ. Love your Christian brother and your sister. And the argument that John gives is quite simple. He says this, if God is your father through Jesus Christ, and now you are his son and his daughter, then everyone who is in Jesus, they are your brothers and your sisters. And if you are brothers and sisters, then you should not hate one another any references here, Cain and Abel, who were literal brothers, but he says, you ought to love one another because you are brothers and you are sisters. Uh, I don't know if any of you grew up with siblings. I'm sure many of you have, uh, but I grew up with three siblings. I had one older sister and I had two younger brothers. We grew up and we lived in a very small apartment In Brooklyn, New York. And I shared a room with my two brothers all throughout high school. And you can imagine all the fighting that went on. Uh, Jeffrey uh, Kluger, who writes for the Times magazine, who writes for Times magazine, uh, he wrote a book a few years ago entitled The Sibling Effect. And in it, he references that um, siblings from about ages two to four, uh, studies show that they fight once every two-and-a-half minutes, okay? Two-and-a-half minutes. Um, So you can imagine, right, uh, that's one sibling. Uh, I had three siblings. So you can imagine the constant fighting that went on, young and old, just fighting constantly. Now, my parents, uh, who were more traditional, they uh, had this transgression chart. It was a verbal chart. It was non written, okay? It was, it was a mental chart. And I think it often changed, you know, just to suit their convenience. But there was this transgression chart that they had. And, you know, of course, there are varying degrees of transgressions. And depending on uh, that transgression, there were varying degrees of punishment. And high on the top of that list was fighting with your siblings. Now, there were times we, the four of us, we did some really, really bad things. Yeah, we we were terrible, terrible children to our parents. We rebelled against them quite often. We ran away from home and didn't show up for days. And mind you, this is before cell phones, and so they could never find us. We almost burned down our apartment once. On the flip side, we turned our apartment into a swimming pool once. It was the summer, we were hot, we wanted to go to a pool, and so what we did was we just, you know, turned the bathtub on and just threw poor water all over the floor because we wanted to swim. Yeah, we did some stupid, stupid things, and sure, we were punished. But whenever we fought with each other, that was high on the list. And that punishment was severe and that punishment was often coupled with this deep disappointment and sadness that came over my parents. Whenever we got in trouble for fighting with each other, you can hear it in their voices. They would let out a deep sigh. You can hear it in their voice, the pathos in which they communicated. The punishment was often much longer because it would always end with a long one-hour lecture on how important your brothers and sisters are. You know, my mom, she would get into this long conversation. She would talk about her younger sister who died when she was just an infant. She would talk about her mother who passed away when she was young and how, as siblings, they had to stay together. For those of you who are parents, doesn't it break your heart when you see your children fighting at each other's throats, hating and despising one another, judging one another, not protecting one another, being selfish towards one another, not caring for one another? You know, the thing that I hate the most in my my children when I see them fight is when they are selfish towards each other. When they're just looking out for themselves. Doesn't it break your heart when the only time that they are nice is when they are in front of you? Friends, it's not a stretch to say that likewise is the case with our Heavenly Father. You know, often like little children, we play very, very nice at church during worship when we pray for one another. But when we are not before our parents, we judge, we're selfish, we're not caring towards one another, we despise one another, we criticize one another. You know, I don't, I don't know what it is about, you know, Christian brothers and sisters, but when it comes to Christian brotherhood and Christian kinship, Christian sisterhood, there's this idea, I think many of us have this idea that, yeah, you know, Christian brothers and sisters Uh, the relationship is less than a friend but more than an acquaintance, somewhere in between, right? Uh, Being Christian brothers and sisters means, you know, I like you, but I don't want to be around you too much, right? For instance, what do you think about if someone says this, I love you like a brother in Christ? What does that actually mean? You know, Lloyd-Jones says this, Real brothers and sisters don't call each other brothers and sisters. <laughs> I love you like a brother in Christ. You know what that means? You know the underlying language that is used whenever we say this? is, yeah, I don't really like you, <laughs> but I like you because we worship the same God. You know, it's like you with your siblings saying, you know what? I don't really like you, but because we have the same parents, I have to like you. I love you like a brother in Christ. You know, I don't really see you that way. You know, this idea of Christian brotherhood and sisterhood is not just a hypothetical. It's not just a metaphor. You know, John, in his letter, he's saying this sibling relationship that we have in Christ, it's not just an analogy, but it's a reality. It's more real than your earthly brothers and sisters. Because while that relationship lasts only here. The spiritual kinship that we have, that lasts forever. So, church, let's not talk in hypotheticals or generalizations. I'm not asking you here this morning, do you love the world, or do you love Christians? But the question that I'm asking here this morning is this, beloved, do you love your brothers and sisters here in this room. How awkward would it be if I ask you now to turn to each other and look at each other? Love you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the question is, do we love our brothers and sisters here in this room? This is a serious matter. Because John says this, There is no way that you can claim to love God if you hate your brother. He says you can't be in the light if you hate, because if you hate, you are in darkness. You know, at one point, John argues this. How can you say, I love God, a God whom you can't see, but you hate your brother whom whom you can see who sits right next to you? You can't say, I love God and hate your brother. Jeffrey Kluger, again, he talks about how he writes this, our spouses and children arrive comparatively late in our lives. Our parents leave us too early, but our brothers and sisters are with us for the whole journey. And he says this, there may be no relationship that affects us more profoundly No relationship that's closer, finer, harder, sweeter, happier, sadder, more filled with joy or fraught with wow than the relationship that we have with our brothers and sisters. There is power in the sibling bond. Friends, if this is true for our earthly brothers and sisters, how much more so should it be for our spiritual brothers and our sisters? Whom should we love? Not just generalizations, we're supposed to love each other. Each other. Final question is, how should we love them? How should we love? And the answer is simple. The answer that John gives is this. Love as Jesus has loved. You know, in today's passage in chapter 2, John, he talks that, he says that this love command is both old and new. It's old and new. And it's old because this command to love was found all throughout the Old Testament. For instance, Leviticus 19, 18 uh, says this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This commandment to love is found all throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, this command to love as you love yourself in some form or fashion is found in all religions. Love, love, love your neighbor. It's old, but it's also new because when Jesus gives this commandment, he adds a new layer to it. He says this, no longer are we to love as we love ourselves, which in itself is a really hard thing to do, but he says this, now we are to love as Jesus has loved us. He takes it to a whole new level. He says, love not as you love yourself, but love as you have been loved. See, John, Jesus, John 13, 34 says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Or in today's passage, chapter 3, 16, by this we know love, that he lay down his life for us. Therefore... We ought to lay down our lives for one another. How should we love? Not in the way that we want to. Not in the way that we are capable of loving. How should we love? Not in the way that the recipient is even deserving. How should we love? Not in the way that we even love ourselves. But we love in the way that we have been loved by Jesus. This is, friends, the Christian standard of love. What Jesus has done for us, we ought to do for one another. You know, I I often thought about this. What does it mean to love like Jesus has loved us, right? What does that actually mean? Well, John, I think, fleshes this out a little bit more. What does it mean to lay down our lives for one another? Well, he says this in the next verses. 17 and 18. He says this, if anyone has the world's goods, right, if you have anything but you see your brother in need, but you close your heart towards him, how does God's love abide in him? And John says this, more practically, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let's love not in word or in talk, but indeed in truth. Wouldn't you agree with me that Christian love, the love that we practice as Christians, tend to be immaterial, inconsequential. Christian love tend to be frivolous, superficial. The language that we use is profound when we talk about love. But most of the time, it's tongue in cheek. We talk about love, we explain love, we even advocate for love. What do we say as Christians? We say we support the unborn babies and sisters. We support unborn babies, our brothers and sisters who have yet to be born. We say we ought to love the aliens and the immigrants. We even say we love all those around us, we love, we ought to love the LGBTQ community. We say it, we vote it, we write about it, we advocate for it. But how many of us have actually stepped inside a homeless shelter? When was the last time you visited a nursing home to comfort the elderly? When did you last step into a foster care home to care for the fatherless? Better yet, did you call or text a brother or sister this week that you know who was struggling. When was the last time you prayed for someone else other than yourself and your immediate family? Too often, Christian love is inconsequential. There's a well-known quote. Um, some people believe it's from John Stott, but he writes this, speaking in the voice of Jesus. He says this, I was hungry, and you formed the Humanities Club to discuss it. I was imprisoned, but you complained about the crime rate. I was naked, and you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me about the shelter of God's love. You seemed so holy and so close to God, but I'm still hungry, lonely, cold, and in pain. How should we love as Christ did? Not just in word or talk, but in deed and Now I shared with you uh, last week that John was the last surviving disciple, the last among Jesus's 12. And at this point, when John is writing this letter, I shared with you that he's so old, he has no strength in his legs, that he's carried on a cot from church to church, home to home. And these are his last days, and people know it. They get a sense of it. And so there is some excitement at the church that he's at, the church of Ephesus. And the saints there, they know John is about to pass. We must listen to him. We must go to him. We must hear from him. Now, according to Jerome, who's a well-known church father associated with the church in Ephesus, he talks about how John was carried, and he went from church to church, and whenever he would preach, he would always say this, little children love one another. First time was amazing. Wow. Simple yet profound. Second time, children love one another. Wow, the second time is even better. You would do it three, four, five, six. That's the message you would preach over and over. And at some point, the people said, John, do you have anything else for us? Are you going to tell us to love one another over and over again? I mean, John, you were Jesus' disciple. Tell us something more. Tell us something that we haven't heard before. Tell us about a miracle maybe that you've seen and witnessed that hasn't been written about. Tell us something good. You know, I remember 12 years ago, this is when uh, the the well-known evangelist Billy Graham was uh, he was getting very old, and he was closing out his crusade, and there was some talk that this might be his last crusade, and so I went. I went to Billy Graham's last crusade. It was in New York, and I was excited. I was stoked. Yes, I'm going to hear from Billy Graham. He preached on John 3, a sermon that I've heard dozens of times. He said, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. He said that over and over again, and I kept thinking, come on, you're Billy Graham. Give me something new. This is what the congregants felt. You're John. You're John. Tell us something that we don't know. You know what John answered? He said, no, I don't have anything else for you, because this was the Lord's command. And if only this is to be done, it is enough. You know, I wonder, John must have probably got this from Jesus himself. Because on Jesus' last day on earth, before he's about to go to the cross, Jesus, he invites all of his disciples, he washes their feet, and he says, I'm going to leave, but this commandment I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you. And you got to imagine, this is Jesus' last night. And the disciples, they feel the air is thick with tension. And they're thinking, Jesus, you're going away. Where are you going? And Jesus is saying, love one another. And the disciples are saying, no, 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 wait, Jesus, you got to give us roles here. We're 12 people. You need to distinguish roles so we can carry out your mission. Jesus says, no, love one another. And the disciples are saying, no, Jesus, give us a plan. Tell us what's going to happen. Where are you going? Tell us about the future. Give us something substantial. Give us something concrete. And Jesus says, no, love one another. Love one another. Beloved, this commandment might be old to you, but as you hear it again this morning, may it fall fresh and be new to you once again. Let us love one another because we have been loved first. Let us love our brothers and our sisters, and let us love not in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Join me in prayer at this time.